Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina, who have we got with us today? We've got Gillian Kenny, who's a historian, medievalist and research associate at Trinity College Dublin. Hi, Gillian. Hello. Hi, both. How are you? Oh, we're fed up with COVID and we're ready to have a laugh today, aren't we? Because we're going to talk <laughs> mad <laughs> things. We're, we're going to talk about Irish medieval women, aren't we? Uh, yes, and that is um, full of mad shit. So... <laughs> distract people from covid brilliant even madder than this time yes wait. i love it i love it go let's let's go let's go for it let's go for it let's do it so let's start with ireland's most foremost female saint saint bridget used magic and uh was an abortionist is this right Uh, yeah she was (laughs) she was an abortionist yeah I've said that to anti-abortion protesters <laughs> on the street <laughs> in Dublin and, and uh, ended up getting fairly, fairly comprehensively screeched at. Uh, yeah, so it's, I mean, in the sense that she made a fetus disappear, which is pretty dodgy. Um, so, of course, we've got uh, several um, hagiographies from her, her time, her, her lives of, and in them they talk about the fact that, um, you know, there's a woman in trouble and she didn't want the baby, <laughs> Bridget made it disappear and anyway there's there's about four abortionist saints in the irish kind of pantheon of saints she's the only female one they tended to go oh you have a baby you don't want let me wiggle my fingers over your tummy there quick prayer and then all gone and everything solved yeah she's um she was i mean she's called the irish mary and she was like the premier saint i remember when i was young in ireland a, a little girl i i joined like that you have like a like a like a Girl Scout that was for St. Bridget. And oh, really? To, yeah, yeah, amazing. And you had to go and, like, make St. Bridget's crosses and pray. I think I lasted about three weeks. I remember saying to my mother, <laughs> I, I don't want all the praying, because there was quite a lot. I was in a Catholic school. Yeah, she's um, mega famous. She's as prestigious as Patrick in the kind of Irish tradition, um her origins are of course obscured um it may be some people say she's the christian adaptation of an existing pagan deity other people say it was a real woman but of course the legends have have taken on aspects of the the pagan deity and she did she did use what you could call magic she used words of power so she cast spells there's a famous story of a man whose wife didn't love him and he came to St. Bridget and he was like, can you do something? She's like, all right. So she she said something um, and made some kind of hand gesture. And then suddenly his wife loved him so much that when he went fishing, she was 
wading out to be with him. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She sounds a bit creepy. Oh, yes. I mean, what? Um, Yeah, he was like, oh, this is great, except she's standing in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean staring at me all day, so maybe it's not quite the best thing. But, yeah, she was... um, Yeah, the the early Irish saints are interesting because there's a real mishmash, you know, they... They, they they use what we traditionally call magic. So, you know, they, they use words of power. But in the in the Gaelic tradition, in the Irish tradition, uh, words are incredibly powerful things. And not just in, in what they say can hurt, but there this, this seems, seems to be an innate power in them. So um, there's a, I mean, in the, in, the, in the Irish tradition, poets are really, really esteemed. And uh, some poets were believed to have access to kind of a magical power with poetry. So with their satire, that it could actually kill you. I mean, it would actually kill you. So there's there's even some (laughs) there's even some examples uh, from the later Middle Ages when the English were over there of like English, uh, an English governor of Ireland was supposed to have been killed by satire, Uh, you know, stone dead because the words had such power. Um, and and yeah, so so it's she's part of, she's she's that tradition, uh, you know. But I mean, as you can probably tell by now, Irish people like to talk a lot. So, <laughs> did she tell us something though about agency by women in contraception, even in earliest times? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, um, you know, I think there's, there's there's definitely something there about about women making a choice and having the agency to act on it. Now, whether whether that means they needed to go to someone to help. So, in, you know, you think of it uh, in, in a real life situation. Um, if a woman was in trouble in that way, she most likely would have gone to an, an older, wiser female in that sense to help out, to control their contraception or to, well, of course, back then they didn't really know the difference between contraception and abortion, but to control what had happened to her, to get rid of the baby. And I mean, there's loads of evidence from around Europe that, uh, women certainly used, you know, certain plants to to try and to try and get rid of a fetus. So there's no reason why Irish women couldn't have done exactly the same thing. That there wouldn't have been a way of of um, of doing it. I mean, it's it's an interesting question because, of course, uh, Ireland's only recently uh, passed abortion into law, and it was a mm. very contentious issue. Um, for I mean hundreds of years and um, so I mean the idea for many Irish people so I, I wrote a, an article on on um, abortion in medieval Ireland a while ago and my inbox was astonishing um, oh, with and, abuse well yeah but also a lot of people saying they were praying for me which is you know handy brilliant thanks um, yeah because yeah, because people cannot reconcile this idea that that the island they have in their heads which was all about maidens dancing at the crossroads and getting married and having children in that kind of way was absolutely nothing to do with how it actually was in a very, uh, in times that could be very difficult and very disordered and women had to have some control or exert some agency on the size of their family. So uh, yeah, it always makes for interesting discussions whenever I bring it up with certain Irish people. The next point, you've actually, the next point kind of feeds into, into, into this one. But yeah. you said something about um, words. Now, the first thing that popped into my head was sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But in theory, in Ireland, that's so wrong, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, they, they, I mean, they did, they did think that. Um, so it's a certain power in your in your words. I mean, 
it, it slightly goes back to a, a much earlier time. So the uh, what we know about, say, um, early Ireland is mainly encapsulated in legal codes, which were written down around 7th and 8th centuries. And they, they in turn go back to a much earlier time. But uh, some of them talk about the magic of, of druids. Um, there's one particular instance, and a druid is talked about, and he's basically um, holding a poppet, and he's he's cursing someone, but he adopts a particular stance and uses a particular set of uh, words, which of course is is standard in magic. And he looks towards where the person is, and he has people around him. So back in those days as well, the poets were 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 more or less they were seen to be magical. They weren't druids, but they had magical powers. The filly. So um, they, it, it's like a like a, a remnant of that time whereby. People believe that certain certain individuals had that innate power, and it it's interesting in Ireland because you know ostensibly it's a Christian country. There's still that really really strong folk belief in in that kind. I mean, you talk about the evil eye. The evil eye is a really pertinent problem in Ireland. Um, you know, within magic. I mean, I remember as a kid standing outside our house and a plant fell over, and I remember my mother saying that it was our neighbour because she was putting the evil eye on her. It was like, <laughs> what? Yeah, and my mother was like, that's the evil eye, what? So uh, little wonder I kind of grew up obsessed with all this stuff. But you have a, an aspect of um, uh, Irish law as well. You know, they talk about uh, women and children, and, and what they don't want is for female satirists to have custody of their children. They're seen as outliers. They're seen as they completely try to other them, because... The power of satire, the power of that that versifying that's magical in the hands of a woman and and within within uh, the Irish tradition, um, you know, there's there's quite a pantheon of really powerful women, like in the mythology, uh, who are magic makers. So a kind of combination of that is is really really worrying that a woman would have access to those levels of magic. Um, it kind of lies dormant within the culture because I mean you read the old Irish tales about Queen Maeve and stuff and, and, and the other goddesses and they're like cautionary tales, really. They're like the tales that men have told of women they're absolutely petrified about. And, and yet, yeah, you don't get mass witch trials in Ireland. No, you don't. No, we had uh, one famous one, a woman called Alice Kettler in the 14th century. So uh, there's various theories as to why that's happened. Um, I mean, so one of them is that um, one of them is that the, the, at the most basic level, um, the witch trials were English. Um, and in the sense that Alice Kettler's um, uh, example, it, her witch trial was brought about by, by an English uh, bishop who arrived in Ireland and uh, immediately his head was full of, you know, witchcraft and, you know, all the rest of it. And he saw witchcraft wherever he looked. And it, it was it was propelled uh, by the English in Ireland at that time. So um, the English people. So you, you have one idea that the Irish are like, no, thank you. That's mm. not our tradition. And it didn't break outside of towns, which is where the English largely were. Another idea I've read is that... Um, the Irish didn't uh, go after, you know, cunning women, uh, witches, um, because there was uh, incredibly strong folk belief, which you can still find today in some areas in in fairies and in the um, the link that these women had with uh, the she, as they're more properly known. So basically, you didn't want to attack these particular women because you would piss off the she. 
And that's, that is something that you do not want to happen. Um, the body of folklore about the Irish, uh, the fairy folk, is um, not like people would imagine fairies are. They're not in any way cute. Uh, they are um they're they're puckish you know they're they're mis- Is it like the cornish tradition where they're little buggers yeah they're ah. well yeah they're usually like so there's all these different there's masses of stories there's loads of stories where people see them like fighting on their carpet and stuff where they're tiny <laughs> in other traditions there's all these stories people come into their kitchen at night and they're like oh there's a full-scale battle happening in front of the fireplace amazing um, so there's other ones where they're 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 full full size and uh, they they enact vengeance um, on you if you if you piss anyone off who they like. So that was another possibility. I mean, it's it, I'm painting it in the broadest possible terms. Yeah. It never gripped uh, Ireland, but interestingly, it ramped up a bit in the 17th century when you get English and Scottish settlers in and they import um, their traditions of witchcraft. So things like witch bottles. You know, and um, well, Alice, Alice's trial was interesting in the 14th century because that's the first time people talk about anyone having it off with the devil because she's supposed to have had the devil as her lover. Mm-hmm. And so she, her trial is quite interesting because you get a lot of these ideas kind of floated in court. Anyway, she, uh, she took off, she escaped um, and they burnt her servant Petronilla and uh, a couple of other people. Uh, but Alice escaped. And here's an interesting thing. I was doing some work on Alice Kettler a few years ago and you know, I was just looking up. I mean, the, the story is, is that she fled to London and or an English city and lived there till she died. And there's a weird, there's a weird folklore grown up around her on parts of the web that she went underneath London and lives underneath the city as a serpent. Okay. What? Novelty. It's really weird that she was in fact, you know, deeply magical. I mean, the thing about her is, is she had something like four husbands and she did probably kill three of them. <laughs> the accusations were brought against her by her stepchildren. She kept marrying these men and then they'd, oh, suddenly die with their hair falling out and stuff. Oh, my nails have fallen out. What could that be? Oh, I don't know. Um, so she kept marrying these old old blokes and, and gathering the money to them after the money to her after she died. And she was seen outside her house brushing brushing the dust of the town towards her son's house and, and muttering about all uh, brushing all the wealth of the town towards her son. So th- there may be something there is all I'm saying. But, yeah. <laughs> um, she, yeah. There may, and she has supposedly had a, a box, which she kept locked and they opened it up and there's all kinds of salves and ointments in it. So she was probably poisoning them. The third one probably did have arsenic poisoning or something like it. Because he, he sickened really quickly. Mm. Well, yeah, you, you know, there may have been there may have been a modicum of truth, but anyway, she she got away, and uh, yeah, the witch trials never took in Ireland. The, the, we we didn't have them. We had other we had other catastrophes. To <laughs> we had a lot going on. You know what I mean? We didn't have time for witch finders. I no time for that shit. What about Ireland's first? Well, Ireland has the first earliest references to cunnilingus, doesn't it? Um, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, it, it, we, we think it does. Um, so it, this is from the work of a very good scholar called Tom O'Donnell. Um, if anyone wants to kind of uh, look up his work on it, he's done a lot of good work. And he talks about um, uh, Tom, Tom was researching the sexual practices of our ancestors. So one of the gaps in knowledge of, in the past is, is about things like like Connie Lingus, like it's not mentioned. You do get uh, fellatio mentioned, you know, 
Um, and that's usually mentioned in things called the penitentials, um, which are like um, books of rules for, from, for clerics. Mm. And, but you never get mentioned, uh, you, never, you never get Cunnilingus mentioned uh, because, of course, the monks were taking part in fellatio, we think. Uh, but there's one, it's one he refers to, he's found a reference, and it says anyone who performs the fornication of the lips <laughs> penance for four years, if it is their first time, but if it is usually their custom seven. So he thinks that's about, that's not about the lips of your mouth. <laughs> or it's, no, it's, I'm trying to think um, what else it could possibly be. Yeah, it's lips for your mouth and, and lips of your vagina. So the Irish word that's using it is is can refer to both. But it's in a section that's talking about sexual sins um within within this code um in, in, in a book called The Old Irish Penitential. I think it's something like seventh century. So in the other section of it, in, in the section it's beside it says, um, anyone who spills his seed in the mouth of a woman must pay full full penance for five years. If it is, if it is a usual thing, seven. <laughs> so it's like if, if you've been busted repeatedly. It's yeah, like, you're always at it. Uh, stop. If, you know, the maid servant's coming out, wiping her mouth continually. It's like, you know, seven years. Come on. <laughs> um, oh. Here's one for you. There's no yeah. such thing as illegitimacy in Irish law. Uh, yeah, strictly speaking, um, it's because uh, you could have more than one type of wife and you could have concubines. So basically the children that came from these unions had claim. Um, there was no kind of, well, you can't have a claim if you're a secondary, the son of a secondary wife or a concubine. So Irish, if you think about the way Ireland was um, organised in the Middle Ages, so they had various kingdoms. Um, but it, according to Irish law, it, it, primogeniture wasn't the way things were were done. Now, it was much later on and in towards the early modern period, it got more like that, especially after the Norman invasion. It tends to change a bit. But essentially, essentially, you had a wide kin network and uh, certain of the males uh, descended from you or perhaps uncles, cousins had a claim to kingship when you went you know, so they kind of left it open. That that could cause chaos. That could cause years of interfamilial strife and uh, lots of people killing their brothers and cousins and so on. So it wasn't um, ideal, but it essentially meant that you had a big pool of heirs. Um, so in the Irish tradition, you could have a woman who was your first, uh, kind of your first wife, your your premier wife, who was of equal status to you. And she had lots of kind of, um, not freedoms, but she quite a good good amount of freedom of movement in terms of the fact that she held on to her uh, dowry. She didn't have to take your name. She still maintained essential links with her family, which gave her a little bit of freedom in how she dealt with you. And she could make contracts and do lots of stuff. So that's the ideal state of marriage. Uh, but you've got loads of different ones under that. You've got like a wife who's of lesser status than you and brings fewer things to the marriage. You've got basically what's essentially women who are booty calls who you just go to, you know, they're occasional kind of sex stops. But the um, early Irish lawyers were kind of obsessed with making sure everything was covered and that uh, these women were protected. So were their rights and the rights of their children. So they are a type of uh, wife. Um, and they're, you know, there's, there's concubines that the clerics often had concubines. So they often saw as their wives. So in the Irish tradition uh, of the church, you'd often find a bishop is succeeded by son or an abbot. 
Um, I found millions of references, <laughs> no, millions, lots of references in the um, papal records to um, Irish people looking for special papal dispensations because like their mother and father were either a nun or priest or sometimes both. Mm. Um, so it's a very, very different way of looking at uh, family and relationships and inheritance. Now it does change, but it, it does mean that basically, you know, there's no real, there's no, there's no, there's no stigma around illegitimacy like you would get in most of the Western European tradition. There's there's nothing about that. Now in the in the Irish church, of course, they they did condemn illegitimacy. They, you know, they did condemn uh polygamy. Uh they didn't want it, but uh that's the official line. Um outside of the official line, everybody had a wife and children. I mean it was unusual for like an Irish priest not to have a wife and children. Um because Ireland was was fairly cut off. Um, you know, for most of the later Middle Ages from Rome and, and basically it was a bit of a it was a bit of a wild west and the church just went, well, fine, you know, we'll do our own thing and continue to do so. So it's a very different uh, world. It's a very different mindset, really, to say if, if you think of the contemporary kind of English one and in Ireland at the time, of course, there was a contemporary English society, which was mm. there as well. Because after the Anglo-Normans came in, the, the the place fractured. So you have English lordships and you've got the Pale, which is the area around Dublin and the big cities where they follow common law. And they, you know, they follow church teachings on, on, on as you would imagine it to be on, you know, one wife and uh, they do primogeniture. Um, but then you often get uh, blurrings. You get areas where the two kind of cultures mix and match especially in marcher areas so it it's fascinating in in how in how these these people picked and chose you often get you often get nobles who would be english nobles you know they would they would characterize themselves as english who might you know have irish concubines they quite liked picking from the irish sexual laws bit they quite like that because it, you know it was better than theirs and they would um you know speak irish and they'd have irish legal officials and they you know allow them to run kind of along Irish lines so it's 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 interesting because um it's it can be difficult to untangle the web but basically yeah basically essentially in in very broad terms yeah it wasn't the same attitude towards illegitimacy as you did have in contemporary English society for example I'm really interested in the next point because my mind is really baffled because there was 10 different types of marriages that were valid is that right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the notes. So you could have them from different categories as well, which is what you're talking about. Where, yeah, there are yeah. different types of marriage. So you can have your premier wife, but then you can also have a woman who you occasionally visit. Um, you can have, I mean, some of it's really dodgy though. Like, because the, the, the lawyers of the Gaelic law codes, they, they were the type of lawyers, uh, as now, who wanted every every T crossed and every I dotted. So they, you know, they think of covering all angles. So I mean, basically, one of the one of the categories is is sexual assault. Really, there's no way around it. Um, another one is about people of um, kind of diminished um, intellectual capacity. Um, uh, you know, so there's it's it's to our eyes, it's a bit oh really, um, but in their to their mindset what they were doing was dealing with a society where where this was happening 
um, and making sure that within within that relationship, whatever it was, that there was some kind of structure and some kind of protection for the parties involved. So the Irish laws are interesting because there's, there's really no kind of moralising. It's really interesting. It's a very, it, it, you know, it is a very secular set of laws from this um, early Irish period where they're, they're written down in the 7th and 8th centuries, but they're, you know, added, they're amended in, in certain ways throughout the period. But they they kind of, they don't make judgments in that sense. They just go, this is happening and we need to to cover it. Um, and of course, what's fascinating is about it is, is, is this this is happening because they're, they're making laws about it. So people are, you know, people are having a lot of sexual partners, or some of them are. Um, you know, the, the wealthier elements of society are the men are having, you know, more than one type of wife. They are they are having concubines. So it is it is a society where there's a, a large amount of male sexual license. I mean, it, it is a man's world, essentially. And that is reflected in the laws, um, especially in that category. I mean, there's protections for the women, but no woman was equal in, in, in the in the established sense of the word to a man so she couldn't she couldn't rule a kingdom as a man did for example she would have almost equal status but uh, and then everything graded down so but you i mean there's a status where the, the woman is higher than the man in the marriage and she gets slightly different legal but it, when it comes down to it it's it's a it's a warrior-based society it's a patriarchy and women navigate their way through it as best they can, like like they do everywhere else, really, I suppose. Never more than one husband at a time. Oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> would you be bothered? I mean, you think of it. I mean, I remember, you know, coming across once, there's one uh, chieftain who had like 52 sons. And it's like, Jesus Christ. If anyone's ever seen Stardust and all the sons in it kill each other to be like the Lord of Stormhold, I mean, that must have been what it was like. You, you just, yeah. The annals are just full of people, uh, of men, just riding around killing each other. Um, and, well, they didn't always kill each other either. They used to, like, mutilate each other. So one of the curious things about, um, you know, the Irish kind of uh, tradition in which references probably paganism is the kingship ideal. So this would be good for anyone who's seen Excalibur. So mm-hmm. in the Irish tradition, you couldn't be a king if you were maimed or, you know, not perfect in some way. So if you wanted to deprive your cousin of the kingship, you might castrate him or cut off his hand or, you know, blind him. Although there's, there is an argument that blinding is a kind of reference to castration. So you have to maim him. And that's the way of getting rid of your rivals. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of other, there's all kinds of other mad stuff. So there's, there's a description in, uh, so Gerald of Wales was a, a 12th century cleric who came to Ireland with his family who revolved in the Anglo-Norman um, colonization and he wrote crazy stuff about Ireland um, you know basically uh, mythologizing the country um, you know saying they were basic barbarians um, and that kind of that kind of label stuck for hundreds of years and one of his uh, stories which which you know has has a, has a nugget of truth in it but very little is about a king who as part of his kingship ceremony had to have sex with a white mare right the logistics of it baffle me. Um, yeah, it's like I'm trying not to picture it in my head, but yeah. my head isn't listening. Yeah, a, a white mare out, out, out in the open at his, at his inauguration site, and then he'd have to kill her, and then she'd get chopped up, put into a massive uh, 
cooking pot and he'd have to have a bath and then everyone would eat it. I mean, what? What? Uh, <laughs> what? But, you know, the story is, is that uh, there was probably some, you know, you read these things and you're like, this is madness. But there's a nugget because there's, there's, there's an, in the Irish, in the Irish kind of tradition, there's an idea that the king marries the land. Again, if anyone's seen Excalibur, which is ancient history, but one, one of my favourite films when I was growing up. So the king is married to the land. So it was probably a very, and I, I stress this, a symbolic wedding to a, a something that symbolised the land, which was a horse, because the horse is, you know, incredibly um, important in, the, in to, to a warrior society. So he probably stood there and symbolically, he didn't shag it and then mm. eat it. I mean, we're, we're, we're verging into army, 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 army hammer temperature. We are, aren't we? I didn't even know who that was until that hit Twitter. And I was oh, like, what? so odd. I mean, if it's true, it's like, you're so odd. But um, yeah, so army hammer may well have, have indulged in that in the 12th century, but most, uh, well, Irish kings didn't. But, uh, you know, you have to kind of dig through it and find the little nuggets of truth, which are in there. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Priests and monks' wives are yeah. ex- really are accepted in Irish society, aren't they? Yes, yes, yeah. Oh, very much so. So you'll get them. Um, so there's, there's Irish annals, which are like the, you know, uh, the history of Ireland. They're not always uh, tremendously, um, you know, reliable, but they uh, they go back. I mean, and a lot of them were compiled quite late and a lot of it's quite fanciful, but you get obituary for uh, the wives of prominent churchmen. And they these women are treated as wives. There's no doubt about it. They come from um you know very established uh powerful families and they are married to these men who are you know um high-ranking members of the church and it goes all the way down you know it goes all but the thing about it is is that it's a society which has i suppose i mean it's it's difficult to say because you know but it look it looks to be like there was a it was less uh despite recent irish history it was less less judgy about about sexual relationships um you know um there was a lot more leeway uh i mean there was certain condemnations of promiscuous women of course because they always get it in the neck but there seems to have been an a, 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 an acknowledgement that human relationships were messy and that people did like to try before they buy and that you know sometimes priests fell in love and that that was perfectly okay and i think 
possibly, you know, a priest in that society, which was wholly focused on kin and your kin network. Your whole identity as an Irish person was 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 based on your kin. You know, your your honor price, as it was called, was based on like your father. And, you know, it was all about the the perpetuation of your kin. So so for in a, in a society like that, which also had the production of children as one of its kind of to keep the kin going for a priest not to be married would be really, really odd. It would just feel wrong. So they were married. And yeah, Rome did try several times, uh, no doubt about it. And there was a big movement towards reform in the 12th century. But, you know, the Anglo-Normans invaded, they, the country kind of fractured. And then you're left with this weird um, island where you can be in basically an English-speaking area one minute and then you get in a horse and ride out and you're in Gaelic Ireland where everything is different um and and the gaelic tradition in the church you know is it was, it was an old it was an older tradition it's always been slightly cut off so uh it wasn't until well, much later i suppose you could say 16th 17th century it was all it was all brought into line um mainly by the elizabethans and the stuarts that dastardly cromwell when he showed up with his killjoy philosophy yes it's you know it's even earlier um one of the um one of the more neglected portions i think of of um public history is the um the rampant uh genocidal cruelty that you find with with in the elizabethan period um it's astonishing in ireland um what happened um i mean historians used to not use the word genocide um partly because it was so political because irish history has always been politicized and you have to be kind of careful about how it's presented sometimes. But I think if you look back at what happened in Ireland and certainly in the later 16th century and into the 17th, I mean, there are people running around in Ireland who didn't do half what Cromwell did yeah. in the 16th century. I mean, there are people who did what Cromwell was accused of in the 16th century. Um, so, I mean, but that's, that. it's a different, it's a slightly different world then, you know, but you know, the, this, the, the element of religion is introduced in the mid 16th century the Irish didn't turn Protestant, uh, the English state was Protestant, and that just allows unspeakable horrors to happen because you can so comprehensively other a population for not being the same as you. Um, so it, that's that's a whole other thing. But I mean, centuries of propaganda were built on and, um, you know, there was just mass slaughter uh, carried out on a scale which hadn't been seen in the country before because the idea was to civilise Ireland. Um, so all these thousands of years of development and the whole culture and society was basically wiped out within about 80 years. Um, you know, there are lessons to be learned for us today from this, I feel, about othering and about yeah. calling people names. Uh, it gives people the freedom to um to carry out stuff that they wouldn't necessarily do at home at all i think so was there a way to get rid of your husband at this time uh yeah so under uh irish law which was secular of course you could divorce your husband uh for a number of reasons um you could divorce him if he was impotent you could divorce him if he was uh, gay you could divorce him if he became a priest uh, you could divorce him if he went on pilgrimage and didn't tell you. How common was that? Like, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? He comes back smelling of beer, though. You'd be like, you haven't really been on a pilgrimage. Where have you been? Oh, I was in Rome. What? 
Um, <laughs> and you could divorce him for being too fat to have sex with you. And uh, that sounds like, mm, really? But the reason that is, is because, of course, there's a kind of biblical imperative, uh, you know, or well, a rather, uh, you know, a, a interpretation of the Bible, which St. Paul said, which was like men and women have to give each other kind of conjugal bliss. You have your conjugal rights. Mm. And the, the the lawyers kind of in, interpreted that and some other stuff as meaning that if your husband was too fat to have sex with you and therefore give you babies, because, uh, of course, it's it's an entire society obsessed with family, uh, then you could dump them. Now, it all sounds great. Um, the problem is, though, is that if you're an Irish woman and you dump your husband, the likelihood is he keeps the children. They're seen as his um, so you leave and you would have to go back and live under the kind of overlordship of your father or if he's dead, your older brother or your uncle. And you basically go back to having someone with zero legal rights. Um, what used to happen quite a lot was that it, it happens more on the other side. So men, men divorce their, their wives, you know, they just leave them and um, they don't even go through any kind of formal process. Um, and they could divorce their wife if, you know, if she if she had an abortion. Um, and there's lo- loads of things whenever they didn't, they didn't, they didn't really, they didn't really say it. They just kind of dumped them. And then you find these women who are left uh, with children in a, in a dire, dire state. Um, so, so that was, that was where in the later period in Ireland, uh, you see Irish women starting to use English church courts because they go after their husband. They go to the, the church court um, and they'll say, my husband, was. we were married and he's left me and you need to get him back. And the church would say, you need to come back to her. Uh, whether it worked or not is another thing. But it is largely about having children. Um, you're also allowed, um, excuse me, you're also allowed as a husband or wife to leave your husband or wife for a bit and go and have a baby or get pregnant by someone else. Because they're so bad to have children that if you were with someone and you couldn't have children with them, you could go and have children with someone else and then come back. I mean, Genius. It, it's, it is a really good, it is a really good solution, isn't it? Because it means you don't have to break them up. Um, I mean, there's all, there's all this freedom there that you could take advantage of. But in reality, I mean, you wouldn't divorce your husband unless you were particularly independently wealthy. And that didn't even really happen either, to be honest. I mean, women's power was largely curtailed um within ireland you know but by the legal system anyway they were allowed a certain amount and no more so you weren't going to bother you know why why would you divorce him what would you get unless he's unless he's abusive in which case perhaps women had no had no option but you know there's another curious uh part of the ourselves that they recognize that that there is there is a level of violence you know that they recognize that that it's not allowed and that's outlawed like severe violence against women children are massively well protected in the irish legal codes um you know i mean reading recently about all the awful stuff in ireland about the mother and baby homes and kids being neglected it's like an astonishing um contrast to how it would have been back then children had the same honor price as an adult when they were babies because you're if someone hurt them they'd have to pay a massive amount of money so really really well looked after it's the next generation but um yeah, it's um, it's very, very. It's uh, it was a very different outlook towards um, towards how women and children they they had to maneuver their way. Well, the children the children's honour price finished after seven. It went to a normal one, but is that protection? 
Um, there's that protection of, of children and the weaker ones in society. But the Irish law codes are brilliant. If people are interested in them, they're all online. Go and read them. They've got entire sections. They have an entire section on cats, for example. Anyone likes cats? Oh, um, I love cats on this program. It's brilliant. It's called Cat Schlechta. I wrote an, uh, uh, a blog on it for the uh, British Library. And it's all about what the names of cats, what you should call your cats, what kind of cats there are. Uh, you know, there are cats who, who haunt the farmyard and stuff like that. And there are cats who make certain noises. And they've also got another whole section. I mean, it's mad. It's, it's massive. We've also got another whole section on bees and what to do about bees. If someone's bees come into your, your lands, how do you how do you get remedy against the owner of those bees? It's um, definitely smacks of lawyers charging by the hour, doesn't it? Oh, I mean, they must have been so busy, you know. I mean, <laughs> it, it must have been like, oh, you've got, oh, sorry, you've got a bee problem. Yeah, sure, come on in. I can, I can advise you on that. And um, they were incredibly well respected, the lawyers. So uh, they were lawyers were really, really well respected. They, you have a, you have a level of, um, of society which is called men of learning. So you've got lawyers, you've got historians, you've got uh, judges, you've got poets. I wish we weren't the same as judges and judges and lawyers now as historians. Oh, I don't know whether we. Did. I don't know what they did. They, some of them were really rich back then. Some of the historians, they were like, and you had hereditary uh, families who were attached to like, um, you know, kingly families, and and basically, I mean, it must have been really easy. So you're just like, yes, yes, you're you're descended from uh, from Irish gods. Yes, yes. What's next for today? You know, yes. Here's your genealogy. Job done. Thanks. I'll take a pension. Um, and they were expected though to um, maintain uh, open houses. A lot of the men of learning. So you're expected to entertain, which is a pain in the arse. Oh yeah, screw um, that. Yeah, people just descend on you and they just eat you out of house and home, like astonishing levels. So the Irish feasts were like, I don't know whether, I mean, it's just just manic stuff. Just there's, there's, um, there's prints of them. <laughs> yeah, there's this uh, 16th century, I think he was Dutch, went around Ireland and he, he, he did all these prints of what he'd seen. <laughs> and there's one of a feast. And it's just chaos. It's like looking at something, you know, it's like what's happening every everywhere you look, there's something happening. There's like there's there's like there's people singing, there's people falling over, there's people roasting meat, there's a professional farter who's just blasting off in front of people. The Lord is there chatting away. It's just like, oh, would you really? I couldn't be bothered with that. I'd rather not, thanks. Don't want yeah. them in the house. No, bugger but- that. Yeah, no thanks. So uh, <laughs> you've got all, you've got all that going on. So it, I mean, it, it it looks it looks fairly chaotic. I don't think you get much work done if you were a historian who was like, yeah, yeah, come on round, I'll have another feast, brilliant, because uh, I'm expected to do it as as the retainer to this lord. One last question: You mentioned yeah. getting rid of a husband if he was gay. This has yeah. sounded quite um, sort of live and let live. But then there's a thing, a whole, is, is a guy wasted if he's not making babies? How do they view homosexuality in these law codes? Yeah, so, um, yeah, there is, there, I mean, there is an acceptance. So what, what's, there is an acceptance there. He is a waste of time because he's not giving you a baby um, in that sense. But what you get a deeper sense of how they viewed it is, is in the penitentials, which is the church records. Mm. Um, and they talk quite a bit about homosexuality. Um, I mean, they they refer to it in the earliest times as sodomy. Um, of course, sodomy then goes on to mean a whole lot of other stuff. 
Well, oh, yeah, yeah, Eleanor Yanniger told us that. Sodomy is anything that isn't P's and V's. Yeah, anything that doesn't give you a baby is sodomy. So, like, um, yeah, so they talk about, in this early period, they talk about homosexuality. So they're, they're, they talk about it in general, but they're, they're really, really concerned about it in the church because the monasteries are full of young men and boys. And it seems to be happening a lot. I mean, a rule of thumb with this stuff in Ireland is if they're writing about it, it's happening. So you get you get these penitentials talking about fellatio you get them talking about interfemoral sex where they're putting their penis in between the uh, thighs you get explicit references to anal sex i mean it's it's in other penitentials around europe as well but <laughs> the irish ones pay particular attention to it there's the irish well, there's an irish monk <laughs> uh, who wrote a penitential and his name is common which is fantastic it's c-u-i-m-e-a-n-n <laughs> so nominative determinism it's like <laughs> Oh, my name is coming. I'm going to write about coming. And uh, he wrote a lot and it really exercises them because it really is a waste of time. It's seen as an unnatural sin. Um, it's like, um, well, onanism, you know, it's like spilling your seed on the ground. What's the point of it? You're, you're ordained by God. And, and, and they were supposed to say clean. But there's another interesting one. I think it's the penitential Finian. Um, where you're allowed to kind of recapture your virginity after you just go chasing it around a field. <laughs> I don't know. You just see it <laughs> up again. <laughs> after, <laughs> after, after seven years, you're like... Well, mate, COVID is probably doing that for quite a few people. Yeah. But, um, but I think the acceptance is... It's, so it was, it was seen really um, as something that boys did. They, they talk about boys. It's something that boys did, but men should grow out of. So they look at it a bit like, you know, you get those, those stories about kind of English public schools and yeah. it's that it's like, well, you know, raging hormones. Uh, yeah. The boys have to you dry hump their mates, but then they grow up and then it's fine. Um, so some of the penitentials talk about sexual sins and don't even refer to it because it's aimed at adults. So they don't even think a man would be doing it because mm. it's like astonishing to them. And I mean, they never talk about lesbianism. I mean, it's just, people just don't think it exists. They just cannot see it. So it just, they just... It's not happening. It's there. Just, just doesn't exist. It's not in their worldview. So it's all about, it's basically all about, as everything always is really, all about the penis um, in, in that period. It's all about where you put your penis and whether it was pleasing or not to God. But I mean, I'm sure as you talked about in your sodomy thing, there's a million rules about when you can have sex, who you can have sex with, the type of sex you can have in the medieval church. Um, my God, there's so many. I think you could have sex for like a third of the year if you followed them. So, you know, uh, but it's, it's, it's crap because as we can see from the Irish laws and the Irish penitentials, people were having it off however they could, whenever they could, and with whoever they wanted to. Um, and th these were all, all of these laws and all of these penitentials are just ways of trying to gain control over what people were doing. I suppose it's trying to gain control over pleasure and direct it towards uh, God, really. I mean, you know, that's at the basis of it, I suppose. But yeah, not particularly, um, not particularly, uh, you know, hateful towards homosexuality in that sense it was just seen as a thing boys did and then you should you should kind of grow out of it and if you didn't and you got married your wife could divorce you because you really really no good to her you couldn't give her any babies there's this this it's all about the babies 
it's all about the babies it's all about continuation but i mean there's stuff in the irish legends as well you know <laughs> there's this supposedly you know you have there's like an irish version of um achilles you know and, and he's supposed to have had his childhood friend um who he also killed and um that's you know many people read that as 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 it many people have a have a kind of a gay reading of that of that story and uh, there's also other things which increasingly people are some people are reading kind of um you know gay feelings into in that so i mentioned that the poets were really really well thought of in medieval ireland like they occupied really really senior positions of respect and the po- you often find poetry which is addressed like a kingly patron which is basically like love poetry um you know and and they talk about sharing a bed but sharing a bed is really common in the middle ages because there weren't a lot of beds so you mm. share a bed with you, you know your mates all the time uh but some of them um some some people are and kind of questioning uh whether or not they do indicate a deeper relationship um that's kind of can only be kind of shown in this way in the poetry perhaps it's only one-sided we don't know we'll never know um but it certainly is a, a kind of a a newer way i suppose it's a it's a queer reading of of texts which um have long been kind of canon and are just seen as kind of uh, poets praising their patrons but you know people are beginning to reassess some of them certainly so i mean you know uh, it could well be um that you know back in the day i mean why not you know certainly it must have been but i, I think in general society would have been quite um you know not particularly supportive of it that's for sure Gillian, thank you so much for joining us that was very welcome uh talking about ireland medieval penises kind of lingers which we love on this podcast so thank you so much you're very welcome very welcome it's lovely to talk to you join us tomorrow when we will be talking to zach and marcus with their latest installment of sharpshooters and then in the afternoon we will be talking all about women in vietnam don't miss that one it is so interesting and it's women on both sides and all different corners of the world so it's really worth listening to we are now on youtube we are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms so you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time so do go over there and subscribe don't forget that we do exist on patreon as history hack and on patreon as well which is podbean's own version uh elena and i have had massive fun doing this in 2020 uh but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living etc if we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload then we will need your help so uh, if you join there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.